Hello, uh, my name is Nicholas Segovias and I'm Professor of International Law at the University of Sheffield. In this lecture, I will discuss the question of whether and how the international law rules regulating the use of force apply to cyber operations. The international law regime on the use of force is perhaps one of the most important regimes in international law because its aim is to maintain peace, security and order in interstate relations. It is therefore important to consider how it applies to malicious cyber operations and what factual and interpretive challenges arise in view of the fact that cyber operations can be covert, geographically unlimited, they may create new facts or no facts at all, and their authors can remain anonymous. The international law rules regulating the use of force are codified in the UN Charter. They include the rule prohibiting the use of force in interstate relations codified in Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter, the rule permitting the use of force by way of individual or collective self-defense in response to an armed attack, codified in Article 51 of the UN Charter, and the use of force as part of the UN collective security system, codified in Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. These rules are also customary law, which runs in parallel with the Charter, as explained by the International Court of Justice in the Nicaragua case. Customary law contains three other principles according to which the lawfulness of the use of force is assessed, proportionality, necessity, and imminence. In my lecture, I will first examine the question of whether and under what circumstances cyber attacks constitute a use of force for the purpose of Article 2 Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter. I will then consider the question of whether and under what circumstances cyber attacks qualify as an armed attack for the purpose of Article 51 of the UN Charter, triggering the right to self-defense. In this regard, I will also examine the question of how cyber attacks launched by non-state actors can be attributed to a state as well as the question of whether non-state actors can be the direct target of self-defense action. I will then discuss the application of anticipatory and preventive self-defense to cyber operations, and I will finally consider the question of whether the rules of the use of force cover contemporary modalities of self-defense in, in the form of defend-forward and automatic cyber defense. I will start by discussing the application of Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter to cyber operations. Article 2.4 is well known because it prohibits the threat or use of armed force in interstate relations. Critical to our discussion is the definition of the term armed force. There are two main approaches. One defines armed force by the instrument used, for example, a weapon whereas the other defines some force by the effects it produces regardless of instrument if, for example, it causes death, injury, or destruction. The effects-based approach is the prevalent one. According to this approach, any cyber operation that causes damage, destruction, death, or injury is classed as armed force for the purposes of Article 24 of the UN Charter. For example, corrupting with a malware the air traffic control system of a state will be a use of force if airplane collisions and deaths follow. However, 
three further questions arise. The first question is which effects should be taken into account because the physical effects of a cyber attack may not materialize immediately. The second question is whether there should be a certain threshold of harm in order for Article 2.4 to be triggered. And the third is whether cyber attacks which produce serious but non-physical effects should fall outside the rule. With regard to the first question, cyber attacks often produce reverberating effects. For example, the main locus of a cyber attack may be the data controlling their traffic control system, but this may lead to destruction or human loss if airplanes collide. For this reason, the effects that should be taken into account in determining whether a use of force has been committed are all effects causally linked to the attack or those that are reasonable foreseeable. Regarding the threshold of harm, there are those who maintain that any use of force, irrespective of its gravity, should suffice, uh, whereas others contend that there should be a certain threshold of harm. In my opinion, there should be a de minimis threshold in order for the rule not to be trivialized in view also of the fact that cyber attacks can be committed easily, frequently, and produce limited harm. With regard to the question of whether cyber attacks that do not produce physical effects can qualify as a use of force, for example, operations that disable a state's banking system, there are different views. There are those who claim that the different nature of cyber operations makes it necessary to include loss of functionality and non-physical effects within the definition of the use of force, whereas others remain opposed to their inclusion. In my opinion, cyber attacks that substantially disrupt a system or produce substantial non-physical effects should qualify as a use of force. This is because there is little difference between removing the functionality of a system by destroying it and by disrupting it. Moreover, the non-physical effects can be equally damaging due to the dependency of modern life on cyber infrastructure. Such attacks can be particularly serious if they target critical national infrastructure, such as energy, air and maritime transport, banking and financial services, e-commerce, water supply, food distribution, and public health. Actually, state practice seems to be moving towards qualifying cyber attacks with no physical consequences as a use of force. For example, the French position, as stated in the 2019 document on the application of international law to cyber operations, is that a cyber operation without physical effects may also be characterized as a use of force. In the absence of physical damage, a cyber operation may be deemed a use of force against a yardstick of several criteria, including the circumstances prevailing at the time of the operation. The Netherlands stated in 2019 that at this time it cannot be ruled out that a cyber operation with a very serious financial or economic impact may qualify as the use of force. The second issue to consider is the circumstances under which a cyber attack can qualify as an armed attack in order to trigger the right to self-defense. In the Nicaragua case, the International Court of Justice defined an armed attack as a use of force of a certain gravity. 
is gravity is assessed according to its scale and effects. Consequently, any cyber attack which produces grave physical consequences in the sense of destruction, damage, death, and injury will be classed as armed attack for self-defense purposes. The same will apply to a cyber attack that produces grave non-physical effects. That have been said, there are no clear criteria to which the gravity of use of force can be assessed and the International Court of Justice has not provided guidance. What is important to note is that any assessment is contextual rather than purely factual or legal. For example, a cyber attack on a key state sector may be qualified as an armed attack even if limited because of the importance of this sector to the state. Yet, States may refrain from claiming that they have been attacked for their own reasons, as for example in response to the Stuxnet attack. If a cyber attack rises to the level of an armed attack, the victim state can take self-defense action, which can be cyber, physical, or a combination. If the cyber attack does not rise to the level of an armed attack, the victim state cannot in principle resort to self-defense action. In the Nicaragua case, the International Court of Justice held that a state that suffers a use of force below a threshold of an armed attack can take proportional countermeasures. The question of whether such countermeasures can be exclusively peaceful or whether forcible countermeasures can also be taken is unsettled. Forcible countermeasures are called armed reprisals. The established view is that countermeasures should be peaceful, however. In my opinion, states can take armed reprisals in reaction to uses of force below the threshold of an armed attack. This will create some parity between the use of force and the reaction to that use of force. If such uses of force are repeated and are linked, a state can use force by way of self-defense under the accumulation of events theory. The next question to consider is whether cyber attacks by non-state actors can be qualified as armed attacks for self-defense purposes and who would be the target of self-defense. This is an important question because the characteristics of cyberspace such as anonymity and the ability to hide one's identity provide non-state actors with more opportunities to pursue their agendas independently or in collaboration with states. One way of looking at this issue is by attributing the armed attack to a state which then becomes the target of self-defense action. Such armed attacks can be attributed to a state according to the attribution criteria established in the law of state responsibility. According to this criteria, a cyber attack will be attributed to a state if it has been committed by a non-state actor empowered by the state to exercise governmental authority, if it has been acknowledged or adopted by a state as its own, or if the armed attack is committed under the instructions, direction, or control of the state. There is some controversy about the requisite level of control as states, uh, uh, the state should exercise over the cyber attack. The ICJ applied the effective control test which would require indispensable state input in the commission of the cyber attack. On the other hand, 
the over-control test introduced by the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, in the Tadic case, lowers slightly the threshold. If a state participates in the training and funding of an organized group and in the planning of its operations, short of giving instructions, the armed attack by that group would be attributed to that state. In my opinion, the over-control test is more inclusive and more attuned to the needs of cyberspace. It should be stressed, however, that these criteria are difficult to be fulfilled in the physical world because they are uh, evidence-intensive and it is even more difficult to fulfill them in cyberspace. The main reason is that the perpetrators can remain uh, anonymous or pretend that they are someone else. Another problem is the fact that attacks can cross different jurisdictions before they materialize. The speed with which attacks can take place also affects attribution. It should also be noted that attribution is not only a legal question, but has a technical as well as a political dimension. Technical attribution refers to the attribution of an attack to a computer through forensic analysis. Data are collected from all points of an attack, the preparation stage, the reconnaissance stage, propagation, and the execution of the attack. These data concern the methods used for the attack, the malware used, or the infrastructure used to deliver the attack. Technical attribution cannot, however, identify the person behind the computer. Political attribution is about attributing an attack to a threat actor or to a state by using intelligence information as well as other information. If technical and political attribution are performed and the victim state decides to react to the attack, the legal criteria of attribution should also be satisfied in order for the act to be lawful. What happens now if a cyber attack is not attributed to a state? Can it be qualified as an armed attack? Can the victim state take self-defense action against the non-state actor? There is a view that only states can commit armed attacks, as the ICJ said in its Palestinian World Advisory opinion. I beg to disagree. Article 51 of the UN Charter does not say that the armed attack should be launched by a state, but makes self-defense subject to an actual event, an armed attack. Thus, the victim state can take self-defense action against the author of the attack, regardless of whether it is a state or a non-state actor. The view that self-defense can be employed directly against non-state actors finds increasing support in state practice related to terrorism. In order to conclude, a state can take self-defense action against the state which launched a cyber-armed attack or against the state to which a cyber-attack by a non-state actor has been attributed. A state can also take defensive action against non-state actors if they are the authors of a cyber-attack. However, as I said at the beginning, self-defense should also comply with the customer law criteria of necessity and proportionality. These two criteria have been reaffirmed by the ICJ in its jurisprudence. 
Necessity means that the use of force in self-defense should only serve defensive purposes and that it should be a last resort after all other peaceful means have been exhausted or are of no avail. When the cyber attack is ongoing, the requirement of necessity of self-defense is immediately satisfied. However, cyber attacks can be instantaneous and therefore there may be a time lag between the attack and the self-defense action. Necessity then requires a degree of temporal proximity between the attack and the self-defense action. Regarding the criterion of proportionality, self-defense should be limited to what is necessary to achieve its aims. This has nothing to do with the means used or the gravity of the attack, but with the aims pursued by self-defense, which are to defend the state. The question I will consider now is whether a state can take defensive action prior to a cyber attack. This relates to the criterion of imminence. It is now accepted that a state can take defensive action against an imminent attack. According to the Caroline formula, which constitutes customary law, there should be a necessity of self-defense, instant, overwhelming, leaving no choice of means and no moment of deliberation. I call this type of self-defense action anticipatory self-defense, although I admit that the terminology is not settled. There is also another type of self-defense when a state takes defensive action against a prospective threat of an attack. This is called preventive self-defense and its lawfulness is questioned. However, cyber attacks pose their own challenges to these forms of defensive action. Because of the speed with which cyber attacks can materialize and the instantaneous effects they produce, anticipatory self-defense is in most cases unavailable, unless it is in response to a delayed attack. For example, if a logic bomb is introduced to a system which would be activated later, a state can take defensive action to prevent the attack. However, the state needs to be aware of the fact that a logic bomb has been introduced, as well as it should know that it has been pro uh, what it has been programmed to do. All these are difficult questions to answer. If, for the reasons I mentioned, anticipatory self-defense is not effective, the most effective option is to act preventively but preventive self-defense, as I said, is front upon. That said, if the criterion of imminence is interpreted in factual and qualitative terms and not exclusively in temporal terms, anticipatory and preventive self-defense come closer. For example, the assessment of imminence can take into account the nature of the cyber weapon the consequences of the attack, the ability to defend against the attack. In this regard, the Tally Manual speaks of the last window of opportunity for the exercise of self-defense. It should be noted, however, that even in this case, the assessment of imminence is not free from difficulties, and above all, it is subjective and requires good intelligence as well as technical knowledge and capabilities. I will now consider two concepts of self-defense applicable to cyberspace. The first is the defend-forward concept introduced by the United States, 
which describes a strategy of continuous engagement with adversaries, often involving extraterritorial operations. The question is whether Articles 2, 4 and 51 of the UN Charter apply to this concept. It seems that defend-forward operations can be forcible as well as non-forcible, and that they can respond to operations below as well as above the use of force threshold. If the defend-forward operation is forcible in response to an armed attack, it falls within the self-defense rule, and in order to be lawful, it should be proportionate and necessary. Its legality will also depend on whether it is anticipatory or preventive. If it is forcible in response to a use of force, it can be justified as armed reprisals, although their legality is debated, as I have already said. If it is in response to a malicious operation below the use of force threshold, it cannot be forcible. The problem with the defend-forward concept is that the adversary whose systems have been intruded and surveyed may interpret such actions as a prelude to an attack and act in self-defense. Defend-forward operations may also cause collateral damage to third states, uh, which uh, again raises the question of whether they should be viewed as a use of force by the affected states. Active cyber defense refers to the use of artificial intelligence to detect attacks and take defensive action in real time. It provides efficiencies of scale and overcomes time gaps in defense. However, it also has its own challenges. Although a computer can recognize an attack in light of the targeted objects and may be able to quantify the attack, it cannot contextualize it in order to ascertain its gravity, and it cannot properly ascertain its external effects, those outside the network. If the circumstances are complex and rapidly evolving or intentionally misleading, it may not be able to ascertain an attack or may be deceived. Attribution is also an issue that computers may not be able to perform unless the attack emerges from governmental computers and even in this case, you would not be able to ascertain the operator of the computer. Finally, a computer may not be able to ascertain the necessity of the self-defense action, in particular if the detection of the attack has been delayed and it is equally difficult to ascertain its proportionality against the aims of the operation. An incorrect judgment can turn a supposedly defensive action into a use of force or an armed attack and trigger consequences. All this leads to the conclusion that automatic cyber defense can be effective in very limited circumstances and in simple and structured environments, but also with humans in the loop or on the loop. In order to conclude, I want to say that the lecture demonstrated that the international law rules regulating the use of force apply to cyber operations. However, there are competing views as to how they apply. This is because the content and scope of these rules has been contested in the physical world, but also because cyberspace poses new challenges to the rules. The question of whether non-physical consequences should be taken into account in determining a use of force or an armed attack 
the place and role of non-state actors, the scope of feminists, and the note of attribution are some of the challenges that exist to which this lecture offered is considered views. It is difficult to say whether and how the law will develop, but at least international law provides the default legal framework. Thank you.